This is Laura Bush, author of Powering Content, Building a Nonstop Content Marketing Machine, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2017 this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is the one event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. You will leave the conference with all the materials you need to take a content marketing strategy back to your team and to implement a content marketing plan that will grow your business. To register and get the best price, do two things. First, go to marketingbookpodcast.com and click on the Content Marketing World banner Make sure to go through marketingbookpodcast.com so they'll know I sent you. Seriously, there's a bottle of scotch in it for me for everyone who registers through marketingbookpodcast.com. Then, for the lowest price, when you register, make sure to use promo code MARKETINGBOOK and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of us drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details after the interview. Today, we welcome Laura Bush to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her new book, Powering Content, Building a Nonstop Content Marketing Machine. Laura Bush is an author, speaker, and entrepreneur whose areas of expertise include consumer research, digital marketing, and lean branding principles. She is the author of Lean Branding, Creating Dynamic Brands to Generate Conversion. And she holds a bachelor's degree in business administration from American University in Washington, D.C., a master's degree in design management from the Savannah College of Art and Design, and is currently a doctoral candidate in psychology. And interesting fact, she was born in Columbia and joins us from there right now. Laura, congratulations on Powering Content and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you and thanks for having me. So I said your name is Laura Bush, but it's spelled B-U-S-C-H-E. So just for some of those people that are wondering, I am not talking to the former president's uh, lovely wife. Now, I mentioned Savannah College of Art and Design, and I have a very close friend whose daughter is a recent graduate from there, and she's now uh, working for a film company that's based in New York and LA. So I guess I don't know how many people you run into who know about SCAD as it's called, but I'm very impressed. It's an amazing art and design school. It's just a great community. There are lots of different areas in which you can specialize. And the market kind of needs places like that, where if you want to expand your knowledge of marketing into the interior design field, that's something you can do. And not every college offers that. So I was really happy to complete my master's there. Yeah. And so anyway, the more I've learned about it, it was just sounds like a real gem and people go in very different directions from there. And so here we are. 
Let's talk about content marketing. Of course, every episode of this show, I always assume there's at least one new person who's listening, but also I've met a number of folks who are maybe suddenly thrust into the marketing world or they're having to get up to speed. Maybe it's a new job. And can you just start out and explain what content marketing is? Because I'm sure you tell people that you're, you know, working on a marketing, a content marketing book and folks may say, Oh, what, uh, tell me what that is. Cause so could you share with us? Briefly, what content marketing is and maybe what it's not in terms of the the misperceptions. Sure. So I would define content marketing as a series of activities that allow you to share a narrative, a brand narrative with an audience. And, And at the core of that is the idea that this audience is made up by human beings. So the closer your content marketing strategy is to storytelling, the more it'll resonate with that audience. So it's it's a set of activities that allows you to share that narrative. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there are folks who think that content marketing is lots of information about their products and their company? Oh, for sure. And I would call that one of the biggest mistakes you can do as a brand. When you start working on this field of content marketing is there's this idea that you are selling your product and it is the best product in its space, that it is the number one, if not the only option available to consumers. And this couldn't be farther from the truth because the market is is obviously uh, diverse these days and offers a wide array of, of options that compete with yours. So the point is not to emphasize that your product is the very best or the only one there is, but to rather connect with people based on their needs. And that's when you really get their report. And that's when you really start building this relationship based on trust. You know, when people start hearing you and and you start right off the bat with this self-centered dialogue of this is why you should buy from me, or if this is why my product is the best, like obviously there's an immediate rejection there. And that's why many people distrust marketers and, and I wouldn't blame them. Yes, and I've heard it referred to as companies who we all over themselves. And what it means is we mm-hmm. this, we that, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> think of any think of any local community bank ad, you know, talking about how great they are. The one of the ideas I like is that, you know, in the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the guys the the knights are all coming up to the castle, that one castle, mm-hmm. and there's that mm-hmm. one French soldier at the top of the parapet who starts insulting them mm-hmm. and he says you know, uh, your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberry. And that was like King Arthur down there. He was saying that too. But I think of that as today's modern consumer and they're in their castle mm-hmm. and they don't really care about you and they're not impressed with your company and they're not going to let that drawbridge down unless there's some trust and there's something either, I don't know, educational, informational, mm-hmm. you know, entertaining, that type of thing. So yeah, at, at the end of the day, it's always a question of what's in it for me, right? It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's basic human behavior. It's, that's actually why I, I started those doctoral studies in psychology, because to a point, this narrative wasn't sounding genuine unless you, you considered all these, like the way the mind operates, people are always expecting value. And, you know, if you are there trying to engage with them and not providing it, then there's, there's a void there. And it's a shame actually that many brands fail to recognize this. And that's why I'm yeah. trying to write this book to hopefully yes, help. It- Mm-hmm. And I think what you do in this book, it's not going to be solved probably even in in your work career. It's, it's mm-hmm. always this impulse to want to talk about mm-hmm. themselves. But yet in the introduction of the book, you say that content marketing game has changed. How so? Well, saturation has notoriously changed 
the space we have with consumers, the time they can spend listening to us. It's crazy just how little time people have these days to just stop and read an article, to to even read headlines. We're starting to notice that their time engaged with a website is dropping significantly. We're going down to nanoseconds. And, and in a world like that, content has to play, I guess, two different roles. So obviously there's there's the issue of content quality. You know, what are people going to find when they actually stop and read? But then there's the issue of how attractive is this content to actually break through that clutter and get me to pay attention. So content has to be almost a product in and of itself. It has to be attractive enough that people feel interested and then it has to be valuable enough so they stay. It's it's this two-part thing we're dealing with. It's interesting. In, in the book, you talk about why people and content marketers need to understand that the users of your content, the, the consumers, are only loosely committed mm-hmm. to content consumption. And can you say a bit more about that, particularly as it relates to the overwhelming importance of making your content scannable? Absolutely. First, I want to clarify, not to scare the audience, is I, you know, listening that no one is is engaged with content at all can be scary. But the reality is that there are two groups of, of consumers, of content consumers, and I describe those in the book. Those that show low involvement with the content, they have to make decisions really fast. They don't really have time. They tend to pay attention to those types of content that don't require much much time to, to understand. And then there's the other type of content consumer, which is the high involvement content consumer. This person will spend a longer amount of time consuming the content. They will often worry about more central cues within that content, like the facts, like they'll enjoy long form articles. They'll be very much into the narrative. With the low involvement consumer, you really need to take into account all the peripheral cues like is this bright enough? Are these colors going to attract him? Are these pictures engaging enough for this person to stop in their feed and, and look at what's behind? How are my supporting graphics helping out this person who is not as involved, doesn't have that much time, but still wants to, to get a sense of, of the type of content that I'm sharing? So you're dealing with those two crowds. And the problem here is that most brands would like to believe that every single content consumer is highly involved. And and the issue, as I said, is is you need to lead that low involvement content consumer into becoming a highly involved one. And that's the whole challenge with content these days. That's the center of our challenge. Well, Laura, I know you didn't expect this, but your book is already having an impact. I, uh, you know, I'm in the content marketing game, but, you know, but I enjoy reading these books. And of course, I found Mm -hmm. so many great things to in in the book that I either needed a good reminder of or Mm -hmm. was not aware of. And I'm my content director is going to be reading your book next. (laughs) I'm glad. But there was one part where I had forgotten about the importance of the scannability and the appearance and so forth. Anyway, long story short, our agency's website, we've gone in and changed all the fonts. (laughs) 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 We're updating some of the graphics. So thank you for that. That's I I needed that. Well, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So one thing that surprised me at the beginning of the book is you said that everyone has been creating content since the day they were born. (laughs) Explain. (laughs) Oh, well, and and that's... You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because if our listeners were born around or after year 1990, 
They should be very concerned about the amount of information that's already out there about their story, not just their personal story, but their professional journey and their career. It's it's exciting and it's scary at the same time how we've gone essentially public with a lot of the activities and milestones that have been taking place in our lives thus far. I would say that 2017 has been the year where people are, have been starting to realize that they need to either reshape that narrative or start deleting some of the legacy content that is available to to people about them on the web or just completely revamp something that's starting to trend too which is personal branding and, and their whole personal branding strategy i am of the belief that human beings are storytellers by nature this is obviously something many writers and thought leaders have have pressed over the years but being natural storytellers we often engage in content activities that we may not even be aware of like sharing a photo about a live milestone or asking your audience a question about something you don't understand or even answering some friend or colleague's question online all these are activities in which we are sharing who we are what we know what we're interested in and in a way they are our very own content catalog and and we're putting it out out there so it it's just a question of are we doing this in a structured way or are we doing it spontaneously and if it's not happening in a structured way then we're starting to see how many people are starting to make that shift from publishing anything that comes to mind to actually regulating the type of information they're putting out there and even you know in the next level packaging that as a personal branding tactic which is interesting and and fascinating. Well, t- talking about structure, can you explain for the listener how reading about Henry Ford's life helped you understand the importance of following a process for creating something like like content? Absolutely. I have a personal connection to Henry Ford, not that not that he's a relative or anything, but my family collects classic Ford cars and it's been present since I can remember. I just would ha- you know a normal family saturday would be us watching my father fix these cars and and buy all these details and go to a young uh, website like today he does that today he goes to ebay and he gets all these parts but in the past it used to be that he would just have to go to an old garage of someone who was trying to sell these things and 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 fight for them at the lowest possible price so i grew up just observing how people valued Henry Ford's legacy. And one day I just felt the need to read his biography and start looking into his writings. As a business person, he he did publish um, a significant amount of of theory and I started reading this and I noticed that when he came up with the process that made it possible for so many people around the world to own these classic cars. You know, when he came up with the process that did this, the process that scaled this production, uh, he was he also received some backlash, not just internally but externally, because what he was doing essentially was reducing the amount of resources that it took to produce this great form of art, to me at least, that are these classic cars. He would continuously think of ways to make these cars faster and with less human input, with less error, 
And in doing so, he just showed us all how, how you can effectively scale a unit that has been refined to a point where you, you know, you feel comfortable saying, I want to make a thousand units of this. And that's what happened to him with his first model, Model T. And it's what happens to us with content. So every time we produce something, say it's an article or a video or a social media post that we believe is valuable and, and insightful, receives a lot of engagement, we wish we could scale it. We wish we could take it to that next level where we're not just creating one of these, but hundreds of these over the course of a year. So, you know, thinking about Henry Ford reminded me that we are not the only industry that has ever found a way to replicate the really valuable items that our innovation leads to. So that's that's sort of the, the story behind that, behind the whole Henry Ford. It, it was interesting because I, I think you may have mentioned that at the time, cars were pretty much handmade. And he was the one who came along and said, no, wait a minute, <laughs> we can wring a lot of inefficiency out of this and make a better car and I think pay our workers even more. And then he, he changed it where everyone, I think a lot of people, this is the scenario I saw, where people thinking, oh, no, no, I can't be constrained by that. I've got to, you know, create my art. And book did a great job of showing, I mean, this extensive research you did on all of those headlines and stories in some of the most popular sites. I mean, I, I, seriously, it was like 800,000 <laughs> articles and that your, your team went through and researched. And then mm-hmm. you showed, look, these are, these are what's working better. And it's actually, it just reminded me of, you know, having been an ad agency guy for so many years, there was an expression that the creative people would always say, which was, you know, we always have these creative briefs to tell them, you know, here are the instructions on what you need to build. And they would say, tight briefs liberate, to use an, to use an underwear joke. But so it was, true. But it was so, but they actually liked that. The most creative people wanted to know what did work, what didn't work, because they didn't want to waste their time. And they wanted a really clear strategy and all that type of thing. So you you talk about the first step in designing content is all about your audience. I just could not agree more. And it seems like that is the place where if you get that wrong, the negative implications are are greatest. So you mentioned that, and of course, I was was screaming in agreement when I read this. (laughs) There's always a temptation to ignore persona research. Mm-hmm. And, you know, companies will think they either, you know, they, they think they know more about their customers than they do. And I think it's actually worse when they think they know this. Mm-hmm. Why is it that that never really works, in your opinion, uh, where they think, oh, no, we already know about our, our personas. We already know about that. And, and what are some of the steps that, that people should be going through that they're probably not going through when they're doing this exploration of, of who their personas are? That's a great question and one that I that I find very often in my consulting practice with my clients and I also find it uh, in, in companies that I'm not currently working with. It's strange. It seems like there's a certain rush to market, a certain uh, need for speed these days uh, that... I call that, it ready, fire, aim. <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, aim where and, and fire where where it's Thank you. if you don't if you don't know if you don't know what your target looks like how are you aiming and how are you firing it's all these wasted resources because you are committing all you're committing and you're investing time resources from your team in targeting a user that you know nothing about or it might be the wrong user it might be the wrong user and 
it, it could also just be the case, and this is something I find very frequently, that you think you know this user so well. Mm-hmm. Some some companies even think they are the user. Like if they if they were to survey their team about a feature that they would legitimately obtain information that their end user would be comfortable with. So instead of going ahead and asking to the asking the user directly whether they need this feature or not, they believe that internally they can make that call. And the problem with that is it it's just it results in a disconnect. Once you go to market with this content or with this product, you know, whatever it is that your company is working on and takes to market without knowing market, it, it's just destined to to create a huge disconnect and not resonate well with, with the intended audience. So when I stress the importance of persona research, all I'm saying is if we want to be lean about content, if we really want to invest our resources where they're most effective, then we need to know exactly who we're targeting and most importantly, maybe who we're not targeting with this. Something you hear a lot is as a brand, you need to be everywhere and you need to publish all the different content formats. No, (laughs) you don't need to be everywhere. You need to be exactly where your audience is. And it's, it's so simple. It's such a simple truth. And yet so, so hard to, to find these days. I just think personas should be the starting point for content and for product development strategy. And to your question about which steps I would recommend as companies look at persona development, I actually outline a series of of activities that this company can take on as they develop these personas. And I summarize them into four steps. So I'm I'm just going to briefly go over them. Please, because this is, I think, the most important part of of content marketing. I agree. I would agree. So step one would be starting with the data that you already have. So if you have a website, and this website has been collecting visits and, and information about sessions for some time, there's a chance you can consult that. And I'm just going to mention the most popular analytics package, which is Google Analytics. You can start with this platform looking at the audience information it gives you. Google Analytics is getting more and more sophisticated in the type of data it is able to supply. So you can find anything from uh, lifestyle information about these, these visitors. You can find the length of their visit. You can find the types of pages they're looking at, their interests. Uh, there's so much you can do with the data that you already have. And this is not just information you can draw from your website. You can also look at the data that your social networks are giving you. So Facebook pages, for example, has an insight section that is rich in information about the types of users that are engaging with your content. You know, matters of whether it's their age or sex or interests or the, the types of posts they react to best. All this information is already out there. And I would say most social networks these days provide some kind of quantitative data that you can start mining right now. You can start looking at right now. Step two would be to conduct a ethnography, which is nothing but a lean research method where you observe everything in the environment in which it develops. So when I say ethnography, what I mean is online ethnography. Offline ethnography would be 
actually standing in a physical environment where certain behaviors are taking place. Nethnography is you go into forums, you go into Q&A sections, you go into comment threads, you go into Facebook groups or LinkedIn groups, and you start noticing the types of behaviors, types of attitudes, the problems, the struggles, the wins that this audience is currently debating about. You can do this silently, meaning you can just join these communities and observe and, and learn about your audience, or you can be active and actually engage with them and take them offline even. I've seen this happen where you spot a user that's interesting and you just take the conversation offline, you expand on a few questions, you actually interview them. You can take this as far as you as you need to, but this type of contextual research is incredibly useful. Like you can learn about the words they're using, you can learn about the problems that they're running into, their frustrations, and this is all incredibly valuable information for marketing and for content marketing in particular. Then, you know, once you've done the online thing where you're in forums, you're in these comment threads, in these Facebook groups, uh, you can go outside, like into the real world. You can go to, (laughs) (laughs) I have to say this, it's 2017. I have to say you can also go outside. You have to say it more now than you did five years ago, I think. (laughs) I think so. I definitely think so. Outside, as in the real world, uh, you can just find events, find industry activities, conferences, meetups. There's all kinds of activities going on. And just join the activities that are relevant to the audience you're targeting. And physically, face-to-face, try to connect with these, with these users and ask all the questions you need to. If, if needed, you can also recruit a, c- a couple of them for in-depth interviews and, again, continue asking questions about what they're into. And even you can go as detailed as the type of content they're most comfortable with. You know, this, this is also something that many brands leave for the end. The format is also incredibly important, not just the themes, not just the topics you're addressing, but the way in which you're packaging the content to best reach this audience is also something they can give you some insight about. That would be step three. And step four is just go deeper into these interviews, invite these users that you find to the company if you have a physical location or ask them to join you for a call like this or ask them you know, to, to engage with you via email if, if they don't feel comfortable on camera or talking to you, you can engage in an, in an email interview where it's all text and try to go deeper into those insights and ask the relevant questions. Now, after you've done all of this, you'll start noticing certain patterns, hopefully, in the different people that you looked at and the different people that you talked to. And once you detect those patterns, you'll start grouping all these different users, you know, real users, you'll start grouping them into fictional, all these fictional profiles. Like say I am Laura and there's a Claudia or there's an Anne and all three of us have the same types of needs and the same types of frustrations. We would all get grouped under this fictional user, you know, by another name, Mary. And this would be the persona that gets targeted. That's on a very high level how the process works, but there's there are obviously nuances and, and 
tactics to take into account in each stage. I, I do go more in depth in the book, but you can also run a quick search for persona research and you'll find many more insights. Yes, and it's just a, a personal anecdote about why it's so you know important is we'll do in the agency world, we'll do workshops with a new client and help them with their content. And oh, by the way, Laura, <laughs> we are going to steal one part. You talked about how you do a workshop and you talk about there were a couple things on there. And um, full disclosure, we're, we're going to start using that. One of them is a question where you say, if your company were a bookshelf at a store, what books would be there? It was great. <laughs> we're stealing it. We'll give you full attribution while we do it. But we will do these workshops, and it becomes really clear that the company people, particularly salespeople, they know about the kind of questions that their customers have, but it tends to be questions related to after they have come to the company. In other mm-hmm. words, after, which is really, in truth, much pretty far along in their buying journey. We'll then go do these interviews with some of their you know, customers or buyer personas, and we follow the the guidelines that were outlined in Adele Ravella's book, Buyer Personas, which goes into great depth about this one particular topic. We then come back and share the research, and it's always silent in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when they realize, wow, we're so busy fighting fires. We, we, we just didn't realize that's what they're what they're mm-hmm. going through before they ever finally reach out to us. So mm-hmm. that's why I felt so strongly about that particular section of the book. And we're not doing justice to the book because there's so much in-depth information. But I want to go back and talk a little bit more about Laura Bush. Okay, mm-hmm. so you mentioned that there are many exhilarating moments when you, when you integrate quantitative analysis to your content marketing routine. And you also said that wearing the SEO hat is probably one of the most important lessons a content manager has to learn. Mm-hmm. And that you said that SEO was your least favorite word. But now your relationship with that word has improved <laughs> to a point where you will never have a more loyal friend as a content manager. Laura, what happened and why is this so important? Oh, my God. Okay, so you just reminded me of when I started and the word SEO gave me chills. I felt so uninformed. I felt that this was such a highly technical topic that it was just outside of my competencies to even understand it and much less like put it in use. And over time, what started happening was the data kept telling me that visitors, and by visitors, I mean content consumers, readers, that were coming in from, say, Google search were a lot more valuable in terms of the activities that they completed on the site, on the, on the content website. And so that was frustrating because I knew that I needed SEO, but I kept kind of running away from it because I felt it was too technical for me to tackle. Now, one day I just made the conscious decision that this was going to be the one thing that I didn't like, but I was going to start mastering because if I didn't, then the quality of my visitors was just gonna was just gonna drop. If I didn't leverage the advantages of search engine optimization, my content was doomed. Because, like I said before, these patterns I started noticing these patterns where the higher quality traffic was coming in from search. So what I did was I talked to several people, experts in the field. I started reading blogs. I would highly recommend in particular, Neil Patel's blog about SEO. He's recently started tackling the topic of content SEO, 
more specifically. And, you know, I just read everything I could about it. I also started using different tools. So I learned about Ahrefs and I learned about SEMrush and started looking at plugins like Squirrely. You know, there's there's lots of different tools you can use to facilitate this learning process. But at the end of the day, uh, what I realized was search engines are starting to get closer to humans in the way they prioritize information and in the way they read it. And so in creating content that's optimized for them, more, you know, more and more with time, what you're doing is essentially also starting to get closer to human beings because that's, you know, we're all kind of converging to that point. Search engines, you know, this is not the 90s where SEO meant adding a bunch of keywords into a page and hoping for the best. You know, in 2017, SEO is about semantics and and what the context is about and whether people are validating the content you have, whether they're staying on the page, how they're engaging, for how long. So search engines like Google have become a lot smarter about the types of signals that tell them that this is good content. And as, as long as that continues happening in optimizing for SEO, you are also optimizing for human beings. And that was kind of my uh, reconciliation with SEO. If content marketers would just read the one chapter you have about SEO, they'll be amazed. The story you just told, as well as the one in the book, okay, all I could think of was The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy was just <laughs> terrified of The Wizard of Oz throughout most of the movie. And then at the very end, her dog Toto pulls the curtain back, and you realize it was this snake oil salesman who was just making a bunch of noise behind that machine. And that is exactly, I think that's the story you just told. Anyway, that's the vision, the, the visual that I have. And you realize, wow, why was I so afraid of this? This is actually, you know, you came full circle. You, you completely love it now. And it's not something to be intimidated by. And I think, I, you know, I often wonder if the intimidation comes from all the black hat mm -hmm. trickery from the beginning of the search engines up until five years ago. Let's I would say it does. I would have to agree with you 100%. I'll go by Dorothy now. By okay. the way. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, maybe you could show a picture of that if you ever happen to be talking about SEO at one of one of your keynotes. One last mm -hmm. question that I just, I was, you know, delighted to see talk about in the book. And, uh, you know, I, sometimes I talk about this until I feel like I'm blue in the face or taking crazy pills, <laughs> but you, you said that email marketing that email is making a comeback. Explain why that is and why why it's so important. Sure. And, and again, I feel this is related to the whole trauma we have with 90s marketing tactics where everyone was learning what SEO was and everyone was learning about email. And both of these uh, tactics, both of these marketing tactics got heavily abused. You know, the 90s were essentially all about email spam and how people... Either they were fascinated by this new thing where they that, could... That's a great explanation. That really is. We've seen it done so horribly wrong that now it's tainted in the minds of non-practitioners, maybe. It is. It is. And the reality is that email these days is one of the very few owned channels that allows you to determine what's, what kind of imagery you include, how it's laid out what kind of text and how much text you want to share with your, with your user. 
it allows you to see in full transparency what happens when that user interacts with the email. And most importantly, you own the list, unlike with many other channels like social, where your users are essentially not your users, they are the social network's users. So whenever the social network decides to make a change, say an algorithm change, which we all hate, <laughs> then your, your reach drops and your engagement drops and you start seeing all these changes that are outside of your control. So the beauty of email is that it's owned. It's something you can nurture. And it's obviously something we're all getting better at. And it's a form of engagement where your user determines how much, how often they want to open this, how often they want to engage with you, whether they want to reply. People have gotten more and more sophisticated about their email organization. So if they feel like a certain email is promotional, then it'll go into a promotional tab and they won't even have to interrupt their main inbox flow for it. And then they'll go back to it whenever they have time for promotional emails. And so I think there's, there's a trend to return to email as a brand communication channel. And I've seen it happen more and more. I think if, if anyone, any listener or any company, if, if they're subscribing to something by email and if it didn't arrive... Mm-hmm. They would notice it, and and sometimes I'll ask that question, and people say, "Oh yeah, you know, I get one on whatever day of the week, and I always look forward to that." I'll say, "Well, they're doing it right, you know. Think think about that." Now, I know I said that was the last question, but you prompted <laughs> me to want to ask one last one, and I promise this is it. Mm-hmm. Talked about an owned channel, so could you very quickly just explain to, for the listener the the concept of paid, earned, and owned? So sort of like three maybe circles uh, on a page. Sure. So those are terms that we use to categorize how channels are acquired in a way and who they belong to. So when we're talking about earned channels, essentially these are channels where you have invested some resources to the point where you can actually use the channels, like social media, for example, your your Facebook page. You've invested some time creating content for this channel. Now you're able to use it, but it still doesn't belong to you because of the reasons that I outlined before. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an earned channel in the sense that you're, you're essentially borrowing it from someone else, right? Or maybe like, Tem- a, like a news outlet where you've built a relationship with an editor or something like that? Sure. That, I, I guess that could classify as an earned channel. Yes, uh, you are earning these PR opportunities because you have developed a relationship with, with the reporter. In the end, while you can use this channel, you have little or no control over how the information is being shared or you know what gets shared. So this is something we are all familiar with when we share on social media, when some of our posts get an incredible amount of reach and others don't. Uh, some of them get many impressions, meaning they've been they're being shown in many different pages, and some of them get little impressions. So this is characteristic of an earned channel where you don't have that type of control. On the own channels, On the other hand, everything is up to you. All the creative decisions, all the copy decisions. uh, You have worked hard to solidify this channel. You own the list behind this channel. You know which users can reach with it. So think about your email list, like I just said. Think about your blog or your content hub, whatever name you have for it. Different website sections. These are all places where you you can add content 
And then it's, it's essentially up to you how it's displayed and how much and how often. Now, paid is pretty straightforward. It's the channels where you are paying for the right to use. So you can pay for an ad in a certain website. You can pay for a search listing. You can pay for a brand placement or you can sponsor some kind of channel that allows you to share your brand message in exchange for either you know, money or some kind of product sponsorship. You control the message being shared because you have paid as far as you, as long as you pay. So, you know, the, 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 it's a transaction in which you are allowed to use the channel in exchange for money or, you know, something representative of money. Uh, and those would be the three main types of channels. Well, thank you for explaining that. It's paid, earned, and owned, a, a great way to think about all the different channels. And I think particularly for marketers who are trying to explain to their management how some of these things are organized, for those uh, CEOs who are saying, I want an article in the paper about this. <laughs> and boss, as Laura just said, you don't really control it. You know. So at any rate, Laura, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? One takeaway of the book would be that 15 minutes of fame are not as valuable as a long-term strategy in content. Uh, that many are worried about going viral, but they should be worried about growing viral because those are two different things. You need to learn how to scale stellar content. But as I said, short-term success is, is not what content strategy is about. Excellent point. Excellent point. I'm glad you brought that up and you explained that where, you know, I was just interviewing not too long ago, the author of the new, well, the co-author of the new book, Hacking Growth, Sean Ellis. And he was talking about how companies will come to him and say, we just need a really good PR hit. <laughs> and he has to explain to them, just like you did, it doesn't, that's not really going to help you. It may be like a shot of heroin. It'll, it'll feel good, but then that's it. You know, then it'll kill uh, you. Yeah, and then it'll kill you, or c could possibly. I mean, there's a whole other Groupon story there about how that sometimes oh, wow. the, things like that actually do more <laughs> harm. So thanks for mentioning that. Let me ask you, what books have inspired your work and career? And obviously, they don't have to be marketing and sales books, but I'd be interested to know that. Sure. Uh, they happen to be business-related because well, you, I... You mentioned Henry <laughs> Ford. I'm sorry. I should, I should Oh, say yeah. That. Henry Ford in the first place. But then... You know, undoubtedly, Eric Ries' Lean Startup, because it validated so many of the thoughts that entrepreneurs I worked with and myself have had over the years, you know, the idea that products don't need to be pixel perfect when they first go to market, mm -hmm. that it's more important to find market fit and adjust the product. That, that whole idea, so well described in Lean Startup, uh, really inspired my work. That would be one, Lean Startup. And then the second one, Interestingly enough, it's a really old book. It's a 60s book, and it's Confessions of an Advertising Man. Oh, I love that book. <laughs> I, By Ogilvy. That book helped me decide to go into advertising after I got out of the Army and work on Madison Avenue for many years. Oh, man, you just touched my heart. <laughs> I am vintage like that. While I like, you know, I, I value tech, and I, I value new apps and tools, but I always lean on the classic advertising principles, or I like to lean on them uh, when creating content. So, you know, this is a book where David Ogilvy discusses his concepts, his tactics, how to write potent content. So I think anyone in the copywriting, PR, marketing space really needs to read this book at least once. 
I absolutely love that book, and that's the first time I think it's been mentioned on this podcast. So, <laughs> it's really old. Maybe that's yeah. why. <laughs> Although when you say it's really old from the 60s, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, my teenage kids, they'll tell me I'm old. So are, are there any uh, recent or upcoming books that you've heard of or, or recommend that you're looking forward to uh, reading or seeing? Absolutely. I actually bought this book but haven't gotten around to finishing it. Uh, it came out in January. And, uh, of 2016, and it's called The Fourth Industrial Revolution. Maybe you've heard of it. It was written by Professor Klaus Schwab. He is the founder of, of the World Economic Forum. And this particular book is both fascinating and terrifying because it talks about all these different changes, like self-driving cars and intelligent robots and genetics and, and every like every single advance that's shifting the market entirely um, at, you know, at a really fast speed. And what he does is he discusses these changes in the light of what we should do about them and how we should react and how companies should adjust. So Fourth Industrial Revolution is on my bookshelf and about to be finished. I'm just looking it up on Amazon right now. I don't think I knew about that one, but that sounds, wow, that sounds great. Uh, thanks, Laura. You just added my reading list. <laughs> But that really sounds terrific. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your new book? They can join me at Laura, B-U-S-C-H-E dot com. And that's also my username for Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, LinkedIn. So it's Laura, B-U-S-C-H-E. I constantly share tips uh, about content and branding and, and marketing in general. And I really hope we can connect there. And we'll make sure to include links to all the books you mentioned and everything else linkable, including how to get in touch with you uh, on this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. The name of the book is Powering Content, Building a Nonstop Content Marketing Machine. The author is Laura Bush. Laura, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me. And that closes the book on episode 128 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And to register for Content Marketing World, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com, click on the Content Marketing World banner so they'll know I sent you. And then for the very best price, enter promo code MARKETINGBOOK. And if you have any feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome Rebecca Lieb to the show to talk about her new book, Content, the Atomic Particle of Marketing, the Definitive Guide to Content Marketing Strategy. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.